So this morning, we are gonna be in the book of Revelation. Revelation, that's the last book of the Bible. So go all the way to the end, and you will find Revelation. We're gonna be in chapter 17 to 19. So we'll open that up and read it in just a few minutes. But if you have your Bible, you can get it ready. Again, you can use your phone app, especially if you're on this side of the uh, auditorium. And uh, obviously, the verses will be uh, on the screen uh, behind me as well. But, you know, one of my favorite movies of all time is uh, Remember the Titans. And that's probably because I played high school football, so it's all reminiscent. And, it, you know, it's, uh, I, I, love, I just love the movie. Every time it's on TV, I want to I wanna watch it. But if you're not familiar with the movie, the movie is about T.C. Williams High School back in 1971, which is over in Alexandria. And this high school was recently integrated. And uh, the football team, um, the whole movie is about the football team and their run to win a state championship, uh, really in overcoming all of the obstacles of, their, of the racial tension that was happening within their community and within their high school. Now, I have seen this movie dozens and dozens of times. I, I can quote most of this movie. But every time I watch this movie, uh, every time I see their star linebacker, Gary Bertier, get in that car accident, every time you're watching the state championship game and they're losing and it looks like they're not gonna win, I get nervous. I get anxious. I, I get wrapped up into the story, wondering what's going to happen. And every time I watch that last play where they win it at the very last minute, the state championship, I get all teary-eyed. And my wife thinks that's lame. <laughs> but even though I have seen this movie tons of times, even though I know what is going to happen, I know the end of the story, I get sucked into it. Has that ever happened to you? And there are times when I have to tell myself, Alan, you know they're gonna win the game at the end. Like, why is your heart beating so fast? And why are you getting so anxious, right? They didn't refilm the movie just for this time. All right? But there's something about knowing the end of the story that reassures you and relaxes you while you're in the middle of the story. And since April, we've been in this really long sermon series called King Jesus. And we've been walking through the story of the Bible. And we've divided this story so far into three chapters. We started this sermon series with a chapter called the king rejected. And we studied how this whole story began at creation. God created you and me as image bearers of God. He created us with the mandate to live our lives for him, for his glory, and that would be where our joy is found. But we rejected God. We rejected him as our king. And we, we said we'd rather live for ourselves than live for God. So all of creation fell into sin and brokenness. And then we moved into chapter two of the series and we called it the king redeems. And we saw that even though we rejected God, God was eager to restore us to his kingdom. And so he sends Jesus and Jesus does what needs to be done so that we can be reconciled to God again and begin to live our lives for him again as forgiven. And so Jesus comes, he goes to the cross to reconcile us, and then he shows us the way of the kingdom. He teaches us how we are to live for God's glory. 
And then we moved into chapter three called The King Reigns. And, and we are studying what it looks like to live right now with Jesus as our Lord and our Savior every single day and asking the question, how does this impact our everyday life? And so if, if you're joining us in the middle of this series, I, I really encourage you to go to our website and you can listen through this series. It's all on our podcast. But this morning, we're gonna begin the fourth and, and final chapter of the series called The King Returns. Up until now, every single sermon in this series has been looking back to the past to see what has happened or or looking to the present and how we live with Jesus as our king today. But today we are gonna begin to look into the future because God does not hide the end of the story from us so that today, while we're still in the middle of the story, we might have peace and reassurance and endurance. And so here's my goal today. It's to to give us a high-level overview about what the Bible says is going to happen at the end of the age. Because knowing the end is going to give us fuel for today. Now, quick disclaimer here. My goal is to give us a high-level overview of what's gonna happen at the end. I'm not gonna be getting into all of the intricacies of the end times and all the different views and all the different interpretations that people have. My personal view is that the Bible does not give us enough information in order to know exactly everything that's going to happen. In other words, I think all of the timelines and all of those different charts that you see are probably wrong. They don't have everything because it is a mystery. But what God does give us is enough so that we might have hope for what is to come and so we might be ready for it. So this means we're gonna spend some time this morning reading some select passages from Revelation 17 uh, to 19, all right? So let let me give you a couple words about Revelation. The book of Revelation is written by the apostle John, all right? It was later in his life. He was exiled to this island called Patmos. One Sunday morning, he was praying, he was worshiping God, and Jesus appeared to him and gave him a a vision. And this vision that John receives is a vision about what is going to happen at the end of the age. And Jesus tells John to write this all down and to send this out to all of the churches so that they may know the end of the story. But here's the thing. John was given a backstage pass to all of these heavenly and spiritual realities that he just did not have the language to describe. All right, think about this. Our language and our vocabulary is very limited to the finite world that we live in, but John was given a vision of infinite spiritual realities, and he had to find a way to describe these infinite realities in finite language. Therefore, the book of Revelation is is what we call apocalyptic literature. It's full of symbols and allegory and metaphors and and illustrations. Revelation is, is a book in the Bible that it's not to be read like you would read a news article or a journal article. Um, It's not like how you read the Apostle Paul 
who's trying to give you a logical argument. It's not how you read 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, which is a history book giving you facts, or like the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who are just trying to give you a timeline of Jesus' life. You don't read Revelation like you read those books. It's a different kind of literature. You read it almost like you would read the Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia, except it's not fiction. Right? J.R. Tolkien and, and C.S. Lewis, when they wrote these stories, they wrote them as ways to describe these deep spiritual realities. And that's what the Apostle John is doing. He's trying to help us understand these infinite realities that he sees. And so this means the, the book of Revelation is, is kind of weird. Um, it's, it's hard to understand. If you go and read it, it's kind of overwhelming because you're like, I, this is weird. I have no idea what I am reading. Okay, so as we read this together, it's a, it's a normal reaction to look at this and be like, I don't know about this. And so what I wanna do is try to help us to understand just a, a slice of it uh, together this morning. Maybe someday we'll be brave enough and preach through the entire book verse by verse. Um, but this uh, letter that we are, uh, this vision that we have from John in Revelation, it's a gift to the church because it's telling us the end of the story so that we might have hope while we're in the middle of the story. All right, so let's, let's jump in. Let's see what we get. Revelation chapter 17. I'm gonna read for us to begin verses one to six. And we'll jump in. Here's what God's word says, starting in verse one. It says, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, now that refers back to several other chapters that we're not getting into today, but one of these angels came and spoke with me, John, who's writing this. Come, I will show you the judgment of the notorious prostitute who is seated on many waters. And you're like, you're right, Alan, this is kind of weird. The kings of the earth committed sexual immorality with her, and those who live on the earth became drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality. Then he carried me away in the spirit to a wilderness. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. She had a golden cup in her hand filled with everything detestable and with the impurities of her own prostitution. On her forehead was written a name, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the detestable things of the earth. Then I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Now I have to remember what's going on here. It's kind of like an angel is taking John through a tour of what's gonna happen at the end. And he's just seeing all of these different things. And what we just read, it's full of symbols, okay? Right, we're not to read this and to think that one day this, this big prostitute's going to show up and, and seduce all of the kings of the earth. No, there's some meaning underneath this. The prostitute here in Revelation chapter 17 represents the world around us that entices us, seduces us into a life of sin apart from God. Right? In verse five, the prostitute has the name Babylon the Great written on her forehead. And if you remember back into biblical history, 
Before the time of Jesus, Jerusalem was invaded by the Babylonians. They destroyed the temple. They carried off the Israelites into exile and they lived in Babylon. And so Babylon represents the world that is opposed to the people who worship the one true God, right? That's why many Jews referred to Rome as Babylon later on in their history because Rome was another nation who came in, took up residence and destroyed the temple. So they would refer to Rome as Babylon. But look at the way John describes this prostitute. In verses one and two, he says that she's seated on many waters and the kings of the earth have given themselves to her. This means that she's everywhere. She covers the face of the earth. Her influence is in every nation, in every people group. She is everywhere, enticing and seducing people to sin. In verse three, she's covered in blasphemous, or the beast she's on is covered in blasphemous names, meaning she is utterly opposed to God. But in verse four, look at this. John describes her as seductively and deceivingly beautiful. This is not something that is just gonna happen at the end. This is something that is happening today because the world seduces, tempts, entices us into sin. See, at the beginning of our King Jesus sermon series, we talked about what it means that God created you and me to be image bearers of God, to bear the image of God. In the simplest possible terms, we were created to live for God according to his ways and his word, trusting that he is good and he knows what is best for us. And we've been getting very specific in this series about what that means and how we live that out. But the essence of sin is rejecting that purpose and saying, God, I I don't wanna live for you, I wanna live for me. I don't wanna be constrained by your word. I don't wanna be limited by you. I wanna make the decisions of what is best for me. I don't want you to make those decisions. God, I wanna be free of you. So in other words, we reject our purpose of bearing God's image and we instead wanna bear our own image. We wanna live for ourselves. And the prostitute here in Revelation 17 represents the one who whispers in our ear and seduces us into believing that life is better apart from God. Life is better to be independent from God. See, the prostitute is the one who seduces you into thinking that money and riches will give you freedom and joy. The prostitute is the one who seduces you into thinking that if you control your own time and not give that up for anybody else, that's what's going to give you joy. It's the prostitute that seduces you into thinking that influence and power and applause and fame will fill your soul. It's the prostitute that seduces us into thinking that having complete sexual freedom is what's best for us. And it's the prostitute that leads the world into scoffing at, rejecting, and persecuting those who believe her lies. Sorry, who refuse to believe her lies. That's much better. Persecuting those who continue to live by the word of God and reject the ways of the world. If you look at that in verse six, it says the prostitute is drunk on the blood of the saints from opposing them. And so John's given this vision of the seduction and the lies of the world. 
And then he sees this. Go to verse 14, chapter 17, verse 14. He says, these, the prostitute and all of the people who follow her, will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will conquer them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Those with him are called chosen and faithful. And so John is getting this glimpse of this battle that rages between Satan and all of the people of the world who reject God and Jesus and all of the people who follow him. And then we see this, chapter eight, sorry, chapter 18, verses one through four. John says this, in this, After this, I saw another angel with great authority coming down from heaven, and the earth was illuminated by a splendor. He called out in a mighty voice, it is fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. She has become a home for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, and a haunt for every unclean and despicable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. The kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown wealthy from her sensuality and excess. And then I heard another voice from heaven, come out of her, my people. Calling to the church, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins or receive any of her plagues. So, so John sees that at the end of the age, Jesus himself is going to return and he's going to conquer Babylon and he's going to win the war. He's going to end all of the lies, all of the seduction, all of the temptations, all of the sin that the world entices us into. But there's a warning issued here in 18 verse four. A warning to God's people, to the church, to separate themselves from the ways of the world, that they may not be seduced and caught up into God's judgment. Because God is going to not only destroy Babylon, but God is going to show that all of her promises and all of the joy that she was promising and all of that pleasure was a lie, a complete lie. If you uh, remember all the way back to King Jesus part 12, which you're like, I don't know what King Jesus part 12 was about. I preached a sermon on this battle that every Christian faces. Um, as they live their lives, this battle between this desire to live for God and this temptation that we feel to sin against God. We all struggle, none of us are perfect. And we talked about how there's a difference between your identity and your nature. Okay, your identity is who you are. Your nature is how you live out your identity, how you live that out. Okay, so look here. Before you were a follower of Christ, your identity, okay, was that you were a sinner, rejecting God, enemy of God, not, you don't belong to his kingdom. That's what your identity was, okay? Now, your identity was in lockstep with your nature, Your nature is what we would call a sinful nature, meaning your nature was opposed to God too. So your identity was you're a sinner and your nature was you're a sinner because you lived that out. But when you trusted in Christ, 
When you became a follower of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you put everything at the cross and said, Jesus, I can't do this. I need you to, to save me. What happened was is Jesus instantaneously, completely, 100% redeemed your identity. He made you a, a child of God. He forgave you of all of your sin. He made you welcome into his kingdom. He brought you back into his kingdom. And this is a promise that is given to you that will never be taken away from you. All right, so your identity is 100% changed. But you know what did not change 100%? It's your nature. Now, your nature did change. Okay, you no longer have just a sinful nature. You're now pointed to Christ and you now have this desire in you to begin to live for Christ. You wanna live according to his word, but you also are tempted to live according to who you used to be. And so you're in this war, you're in this battle. And this idea of your nature becoming in lockstep with your new identity, it's a lifelong process and battle that Jesus is walking us through doesn't mean that you're not saved. You're still a child of God. You're still welcome in his kingdom, but it does mean that we're engaged in this battle to ignore the seduction of the world and to live for Christ. And that battle is not easy. Our old self is always beckoning us to come back. And our new self in Jesus is always compelling us to live according to who we really are. We just spent the last six weeks walking through all kinds of topics. Things like our time and our work and family and reputation and our sexuality and our money. And we were outlining in all of those areas how easy it is to follow the ways of the world and why following the ways of God is for our joy. And if we're honest, following God and following his word, that is a tough battle. There's stuff inside of us that pulls us towards the world all the time. Even the apostle Paul struggled with this. The one who wrote most of the New Testament struggled with this internal battle where he was so enticed and seduced by the things of the world, but he wanted to live for God. He was torn. Have you felt torn? I want you to read what the apostle Paul wrote about this. I'm actually not gonna quote straight from the scripture. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this. He wrote a book called The Message, which is a paraphrase of the Bible. There's a lot of it I like, and there's, not, there's some of it I don't like, but I really like how he paraphrased Romans 7. I don't have this on the screen behind me because I just want you to listen to this. I want you to ask yourself, do you relate to this? This is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the Apostle Paul says, for if I know the law, but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands. 
But it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything, and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but am pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. Can anyone in here relate with that? No? Just me? I'm the only one? So if our life is a movie, Here we are in the middle of it, waging the spiritual battle between the things of the world and the things of God. We're all engaged in that battle. We feel it deep inside of us. Sometimes we feel like we're winning. Sometimes we feel like we're losing. And Revelation wants us to know how it all ends before we get there. And it tells us that God is going to kill that prostitute He's gonna conquer Babylon and eliminate everything that seeks to entice his people away from him. So in Revelation 18, John sees this vision of how the world is going to respond when the prostitute is slain. And then he sees a vision of how the church is going to respond when that happens. The world and everyone who lives for themselves and and does not belong to God, when they see the prostitutes slain, they are left in utter despair because everything they've put their hope in has been lost. It was all a lie. Everything they've built their life upon has come crumbling down. Let's read about it. Chapter 18, verses nine to 19. It's a big chunk, but I want you to see the imagery here. Remember, this is symbolism. It says this, verse nine, the kings of the earth who have committed sexual immorality and shared her sensual and excessive ways will weep and mourn over her when they see the smoke from her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment, saying, whoa, whoa, the great city, Babylon, the mighty city, for in a single hour your judgment has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargo any longer, cargo of gold and silver and jewels and pearls, fine lemon, purple, silk and scarlet, all kinds of fragrant wood products, objects of ivory, objects of expensive wood, brass, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh and frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine flour and grain, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages and slaves, human lives. It's all nothing. The fruit you craved has left you. All your splendid and glamorous things are gone. They will never find them again. Everything I've built my life upon, all the money, all the possessions, everything I've built, gone. Verse 15, the merchants of these things who became rich from her, will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, whoa, the great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, for in a single hour, such fabulous wealth destroyed. 
And every shipmaster, seafarer, and sailors, and all who do business by sea stood far off as they watched the smoke from her burning and kept crying out, who was like the great city? They threw dust on their heads and kept crying out, weeping and mourning, whoa, the the great city where all those who have ships on the sea became rich from her wealth, for in a single hour she was destroyed. Rejoice over her, heaven, and you saints, apostles, and prophets, because God has pronounced on her the judgment she passed on you. The world is left to nothing, powerless. Everyone had been deceived. They all realized it was all a lie. None of this is good for me. None of this fills my soul. The lie all the way back in the garden, it wasn't true. What did we do? And then compare that to the response of the church. Chapter 19, look, I'm gonna read verses five to nine. I could read the whole chapter, but five to nine, we'll do that. It says, a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all his servants. <clears throat> I lost my place. Chapter, verse five, praise our God, all his servants and the ones who fear him, both small and great, everyone praise him. Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, all of God's people, like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, hallelujah, because our Lord God, the almighty reigns. He is king. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory because the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has prepared himself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, right, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the lamb. He also said to me, these words of God are true, right? All right, so, so how does the church respond to Jesus coming and destroying Babylon and the prostitute and all of that? Rejoicing. Why? Why does the church rejoice? Because it's wedding day. See, when you gave your life to Jesus, you got engaged. I don't know if you knew that, but you got engaged. God made a covenant with you through his son, Jesus, that you would be his forever. And he even put an engagement ring on your finger. It's called the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter one, verses 13 and 14 says this, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is, look at this, the guarantee of the inheritance, of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it in the future to the praise of his glory. So when you came to Christ, God made you his, he redeemed your identity, he put an engagement ring on your finger called the Holy Spirit saying something really good's coming in the future. There is an inheritance that we don't have yet, but God has promised it to us. And here in Revelation, we are reading of the wedding day when everything that God has promised is being fulfilled. When we receive our inheritance, which is eternal life in God's kingdom. 
See, the Bible often refers to God's people, you and me, the church, as the bride of Christ. And before the wedding could commence, the bride needs to put her dress on. And verse eight says that the bride is given a dress of fine linen, bright and pure, which represents her righteousness. In other words, when God slays the prostitute and he burns Babylon down to the ground and when he destroys the ways of the world, look at this, he defeats sin once and for all. At the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus defeated our debt of sin and made us his own. He redeemed our identity. He gave us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. He promised us a future inheritance. All of that was by grace. But at the end of the age, when he returns, he will completely redeem our nature so that we never struggle with sin or are tempted by going away from God ever again. All by grace. We will be dressed in pure white and the ways of the world will be gone, right? No more struggle. And Revelation says that when this happens, the church rejoices because their faith is sight. The battle is over. Their redemption is now complete. They are whole now. No more struggle. No more anxiety. All of God's promises are true. No more doubt. And they'll enter into God's kingdom for eternity. But for the world, when that day comes, it'll be a terrible day. I just want you to imagine, like imagine <clears throat> that you reject Jesus. You don't follow him. You know, you believe that his word is a made-up story, a fairy tale, and that those who follow Jesus are deceived. Let's just say you believe that. And then one day, the sky cracks open, and this is what you see. Read with me, Revelation 19, 11 to 16. This is what you see. Then I saw heaven open, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True. And he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. That's a king. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If Jesus is your Lord and your King, and you see that, that's a glorious sight. That's my King. But if you reject Jesus, and you see him coming on a horse with King of Kings and Lord of Lords tatted on his thigh, your, your reaction is, I was wrong. 
that is the king. Right, you need to understand the symbolism in this passage here. We are told that he's gonna be wearing a, a robe dipped in blood and a sword's coming out of his mouth. That's kind of morbid description. But it's filled with meaning. See, Revelation 19 tells of the return of Christ and it describes it like Jesus leading an army into battle. But the truth is, this is not the beginning of the battle for Jesus. Ever since that day in the garden, when Satan deceived humanity into rejecting God, Jesus got into battle. A battle to crush the head of that snake and save his people from sin. Which is why when he came for the first time, he did not come to judge the world. He came to give his life for the world, to offer himself as the perfect sacrifice so that all who believe in him might be forgiven of their sin. And so when Jesus returns for the second time, he's wearing a robe stained with his own blood. His hands and feet have the battle scars of the cross because he's been fighting to rescue people from their sin and the lies of the world since the beginning. But this time when he comes, his work of redemption is now coming to a completion. And his weapon is the sword that comes from his mouth which is the word of God. Hebrews 4, 12 to 13 says, for the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. See, when Jesus returns, he will not conquer the world through violence. He will conquer it through his word. Every single person will have their soul exposed. Every single person will now know with 100% certainty that Jesus is king. And either you will look into the sky and see your king and your savior coming back to you or you will look in despair because you fell for the seduction of the prostitute. And so this this is the end of the story. This is what the Bible says will happen when, when Jesus returns. But today we're still in the middle of the story. The movie hasn't ended yet. And the question that we need to answer is this. What does the rest of my story look like? What will be my response if Jesus were to return today? Will I rejoice at the sight of my king? It's wedding day like the church? Or will I be driven in despair because I realize everything that I built my life upon is a lie? And over the next two weeks, we're gonna be talking about and looking more in depth into how knowing the end of the story impacts our life today. We're gonna dig into that for the next two weeks. But this morning, I just wanna take this opportunity to encourage you and to remind you that if you are in Christ, the end of the story gives us hope. Because when Jesus returns, he is going to finish what he started in you. I want you to know that. Right, that hits every single one of us in a different place this morning. When he returns, the work that he has begun in you, he will finish. The, 
the struggle will be over. The addiction will be over. The doubts and the wavering will be over. The frustration with yourself that you just wanna live a certain way but you keep on getting enticed to the world, it's over. Your sinful flesh that keeps pulling you into doing the things you don't wanna do is gone. He has changed your identity and he is gonna completely now redeem your nature. He's gonna finish the work in you. And so no matter where you are this morning, whether you are encouraged or you're discouraged, if you believe in Jesus, here's what I wanna do. I wanna invite you to the communion table this morning. Because when we take communion together, we not only remember what Christ has done in the past, but we look to what he's going to do in the future. See, communion is a meal, we come together, we take bread and we break the bread and we, we remember how the body of Jesus was broken for us so that we would not have to face God's wrath, that Jesus did that for us. And we take the cup and we drink it and we remember that the blood of Jesus was poured out to cleanse us from our sin and that we now have his righteousness, it's his blood that cleanses us so that we are now bright and pure, ready for the wedding day. And when we eat this meal though, we also look forward to what Revelation calls the wedding feast of the lamb. When, when Jesus uh, gave this meal to his disciples at the last supper, he picked up a glass and he raised it at the end of that meal. And he said, I will not drink of this cup again until I do so with you in my father's kingdom at that wedding day. It was to give these disciples hope that one day Jesus is going to return and he's going to finish everything. And so Christian, no matter where you are this morning, no matter how your week went, you have a seat at this table, not because you have earned it, not because your last week has qualified you for communion, but because Jesus has fought for you and he has won you and you are his. And knowing that this is the end of the story gives us rest and it gives us peace and it gives us hope and it gives us endurance for today. So I just invite you to come to the table, take the bread, take the juice and be encouraged that you belong to Jesus and one day the fight will be over because he'll come and get us. But I also have to talk to those of you who are here today. Maybe you're not sure what you believe when it comes to Jesus. Revelation is a great book to jump into if you're still unsure of what you believe. But your story's not over either. You're still in the middle of it. And today you have an opportunity to turn to Jesus, to realize that the things of this world are all empty. Everything they promise, they are empty promises but the word of God endures forever. And at the end of the day, when everything is done and everything is finished, the word of God is what will endure. And will you trust that this morning? Will you ask Jesus for forgiveness? Because he will give it freely because of what he did on the cross for you. Will you let him be the king of your life? If that's you this morning and you're just in that spot where you wanna ask questions or pray about that, come to any of us. I'd love to pray with you after the service. 
any of our prayer ministers who will be up front would love to pray with you about what it means to turn to Jesus today. But allow me to pray for us right now. And when I'm done praying, just invite you, whenever you're ready, you can take a few minutes to reflect if you want. Come forward, take some of the bread, take some of the juice, and go back to your seat. And I just encourage you to ask God to affirm in your heart that you are his. Reflect on that. Enjoy the meal. Enjoy what Christ has done for you. And then we're gonna end our time together singing to him. Let's pray. God, some of the times when we begin to look at what's gonna happen at the end, God, it's, it can be overwhelming, it can be confusing, it can be hard to believe. And Lord, I just pray that for all of us in here this morning, Lord, that you would just give us hope. Hope that one day you are coming back. Hope that in that day you are going to finish the work that you have started in each and every one of us. That you're going to give us the inheritance that you guaranteed us at the cross of Jesus Christ. That all of our wavering, all of our struggle, it's gonna be over. God, we long for that day. We pray for that day. But Lord, may the truth of what the end of the story is give us hope right now as we navigate our life day in and day out. I pray that as we come to the table and we take of the bread and we take of the juice that God, you would encourage us that we are yours, that you have purchased us by the blood of Jesus and that you'll never let us go. In Christ's name.